Well, g'day guys. Uh, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at St. George North. Let me pray and then we'll get stuck back into John's Gospel. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not some mute idol, but you are the God who speaks. You are the God who reveals himself. And we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in your word, but even more supremely in Jesus, your son in history. And we thank you that tonight we can read about him in your word that you've recorded for us. And we pray that as we hear about Jesus, that you'll help us to live the life of righteousness that you call us to. And we ask for your help in this by your spirit. And in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, uh, this term, we're getting back into the book of John. And uh, during the week, I I asked uh, the two gospel teams that I look after if they remembered the last time we were in John's gospel. Uh, Because I was was doing a bit of an overview, you know, it was like an introduction week, trying to get back into the gospel. And I wanted to gauge how fresh it was in their minds. Uh, Because, you know, from what I heard, we, we preached John not too long ago. But pretty much all of them couldn't remember when we last uh, read and preached in John. So I thought, wow, it must have been a kind of a couple of years. It must have been a while since we've been doing John. And, you know, I'm the new guy. So I went online and I went onto the uh, snack sermon library and looked up how far back it was. And when I realized that it was only July last year, so only eight or nine months ago, I had a bit of a laugh because as a preacher, it's pretty humbling, right? Nobody remembers the preaching, sadly. Uh, That being said, you know, I I can't remember what I preached six months ago, and the two gospel teams I look after, they're they're men's groups, so they're full of men, and men are forgetful, just ask any wife. So my point is, what we need to do is do a bit of work. Uh, We're jumping back into John's gospel. It wasn't fresh in the minds of these men that I uh, take in my gospel team, so it probably might not be fresh in your mind either. So we've got to do a bit of work before we just jump right into chapter 12. And the first thing to remember is John's purpose in writing this gospel. And John, he's really helpful. He tells us why he writes this book. So it's up on the screen. John says this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these, these signs are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. And the key part, it's, it's really there in verse 31. So have a look again at the verse 31 up on the screen. Jesus, uh, John writes, so that we may believe, not simply in Jesus. It's not just believe in Jesus. It's believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, and that by believing he's the Messiah and the Son of God, we may have life in his name. See, that's, that's the key to understanding this book of John. John is trying to show us over and over again, who Jesus is, he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And that term, Messiah, it's a loaded term. It's the same word as Christ. So Christ is the Greek word, Messiah is the Hebrew word, and it means the anointed one. It means the chosen king. It means the promised king. And if you were a first century Jew who lived in Jesus' day and saw Jesus, if you were part of that Jewish nation, the Messiah was everything. You see, that's who you were waiting for. You were waiting for him to come, and that was everything. It's kind of like us who have Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We are waiting for Jesus to come back and to finally take us home and to put an end to sin and death and pain. It's our everything. 
It's our hope. It's what we long for and wait for. And that's what they were waiting for. And so John's book is making this grand claim that Jesus, this guy born in Bethlehem, born and uh, who lived in this nothing town called Nazareth, his uh, big claim is that he is the Messiah. That's the big news. This Jesus guy is the Messiah. And it's not only news, but it's life. And this is what, this is what comes up again and again in John's gospel. If you want life, if you want eternal life, if you want to be spared judgment and eternal death, then you need to believe in Jesus. There's, there's no other way. So that's what we must keep in mind as we jump back into John's gospel. It's about Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God, and it's about having life in his name. They're the two keys that we have to have at the forefront of our minds. But the bit we're jumping into this term is from chapter 12. And from chapter 12, it's really the climactic part of the whole gospel. Uh, so, you know, if you watch a, a movie, uh, the first half of the movie, it's really kind of putting all the, all the pieces together, right? So you watch the movie and they're giving you the backstory and they're, they're introducing you to characters. And the first half of the movie is really leading up to that climactic moment where then everything slows down. And the whole story slows down and more gets revealed and suddenly all the pieces start to fall in place. Well, that's where we're up to in John's gospel. Uh, So the entire gospel of John, it covers about two to three years of Jesus' public ministry and his teaching. But once we get to chapter 12, the whole gospel slows down. And it's no longer covering weeks and months and years. Now we're only covering a couple of days, a matter of days. And it's the climax of the whole story. And again, if you were a Jew in the first century, if you were part of the nation of Israel and you saw Jesus and you thought this guy just might be the Messiah, well, the moment you were waiting for was for Jesus to come into Jerusalem and to install himself as the king. That's what you were waiting for. Remember that they were waiting for that promised Messiah king. And at that time, the nation of Israel, the Jews, they were under Roman rule. So the the Romans ruled the world. It was the time of the Roman Empire. And so part of their hope was that, well, this king is going to come and he's going to march into Jerusalem and he's going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem and he's going to gather a mighty army around, around him and we're going to fight the Romans and we're going to beat the Romans and the Romans will no longer be the rulers of the world, but Jerusalem and her king, they will rule the world. They will be the mighty rulers. But like uh, every good movie, though far better than any movie is the Bible, there's a twist. See, that's what they were waiting for. But there's a twist. And this takes us now into chapter 12. You see, this king was not going to be the kind of king they were expecting. He wasn't going to be the all-conquering military king on a stallion. No, he would conquer. He would conquer but not by force, not by an army, but by his death. And John in his gospel has been setting this up since the beginning of his book. So just flick back all the way in your Bibles, back to chapter 1, verse 29. So flick back or scroll back if you're on a screen. Go back there, it's worth the journey. 
And look at what John the Baptist, so there's uh, John the Gospel writer, John, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus who wrote the Gospel, and there's John the Baptist. But look at what John the Baptist says of Jesus right at the beginning of the Gospel. And this is where Jesus first turned up, okay? His first moment on the scene, chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is a mighty statement. Uh, just, just imagine someone uh, walked into our building and they stood up and right here, right now, they, they pointed at Evan and said, Evan will take away the poverty of the entire world. Evan will take away the sickness of the entire world. He will take away the oppression of the entire world. And Evan's a pretty cool guy, but that's a big claim, right? How are you feeling about that, Evan? A big claim. And yet John the Baptist, he made an even mightier claim about Jesus. Because he said, this guy will come and take away the sin of the world. Forget poverty, forget sickness, forget oppression. The biggest problem in the entire world is sin. Because if there's no sin, there's no poverty. There's no oppression. There's no sickness. So John's claim was massive. It's a bold claim. But also, notice what John called Jesus there in in verse 29. He calls him the Lamb of God. And if you remember the Passover in Exodus, all the way back in the book of Exodus, how was it that God's judgment for Israel's sin passed over the Israelite? Why was the firstborn son of Israel spared the judgment they deserved for their sin? It's because the Lamb died instead. Because the sacrificial Lamb faced the judgment for sin in the place of the Israelite. It was the life of the sacrificial lamb in the place for the life of the Israelite. And now John says, a new sacrifice has come. The lamb of God has come. Jesus has come. And he has come to take away the sin of the world. Now, why do I make this point? And why do I make you flick all the way back to chapter 1? Well, flick back to chapter 12 now. Back to chapter 12, verse 1. You see, what is the event that's just about to take place? It's the Passover. Chapter 12, verse 1, it was six days before the Passover. And what other event is just about to happen in John's Gospel? What else happens during the Passover feast? Jesus dies. He dies as the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God gets crucified. You see, John, the gospel writer, is helping us to see that Jesus, the Messiah, is also the Passover Lamb. Yes, he is the king, but he's not the kind of king that we or the Jews were expecting. He is the king that actually dies for his people, which is really the best kind of king and ruler there is, the kind of king and ruler that would lay down his life for his subjects. It's actually what we heard in John chapter 10, the kind of shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. And just in case we weren't convinced that John was trying to show us this in the gospel, that Jesus is the Passover lamb, just flick back again to chapter 11, verse 49. A bit of Bible flicking tonight, it's good for us. It'll do us all some good. Chapter 11, go back there, verse 49. And at this point, Jesus had just raised Lazarus 
from the dead. And because lots of people were now going to see Jesus because he'd done this incredible thing of, of raising Lazarus, the religious elite, they didn't like it. Uh, the religious elite, they were the ones in power. They were the ones that had the authority. And these people were going after Jesus, so they didn't like that. And so they were trying to figure out, well, how do we get rid of Jesus? He's getting in our way. He's, he's not on our team. And look at what Caiaphas, who was one of the religious elite, look at what he says, verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, to the other religious elite, he said, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. In verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And Caiaphas, he, he says more than he knew. You see, what Caiaphas thought he was saying was, Jesus is a joke. Let's get rid of him. He's in our way. But what God was doing was actually sending his one and only son. He was sending the Lamb of God during the Passover to his death so that Israel, the nation, may be spared. And we know from chapter 1 already, not just Israel, but the whole world may be spared. You see, brothers and sisters, praise God. Praise God that the Lamb of God, Jesus, our Passover, takes away the sin of the world. Because if He did not, we would die. And we would perish in our sin. And we would rightly suffer the wrath and punishment of God for all the ways that we've rebelled against our God, against our Creator who made us to live for Him. And brothers and sisters, rejoice that this is our King. You see, we bow the knee not to some tyrant dictator. We bow the knee not to a king who seeks to serve himself, but to a king who's actually worthy of our following of him. To the kind of king who gave himself for his people, who offers us eternal life. You see, that is our king. And can I say, if you are not yet following this king, if you haven't yet bowed the knee to Jesus as king, you should you would be wise to do so because he is king and he is judge and he does rule. Whether we bow the knee to him or not, the fact is he is king and you should because in him is life. You see, the fact is no one else can save you from your sin. No one else can stand in your place in the way that Jesus did to save you and give you life. And no one else, for that matter, can stand in, in your husband's place or your wife's place or your friend's place or your children's place or your parents' place or your grandchildren, your grandparents, whoever. Only Jesus can. Which is why for us who follow Jesus as our King, that's why we try to tell people about Him. Which is why if someone brought you along tonight, the reason they did that is because they want you to hear of Jesus the King who died for you and offers you life. You see, the only way you can know life and have true life is by following Jesus as the Messiah, as the King. And someone who got this, someone who, who rightly recognized Jesus as this Messiah, was Mary. And, uh, and Mary, she didn't know that Jesus was going to be the dying King. Uh, at this stage in the Gospel, she didn't know that Jesus was the Passover Lamb who would 
take away the sin of the world, but she knew he was the Messiah. She, she knew that in Jesus was the glory of God. And if we'd been reading up to this point, that just makes sense. Of course she knew. She, because Jesus had raised her dead brother Lazarus from the grave. That stinking body of a corpse that was in the tomb for four days was now no longer a stinking corpse. But chapter, two, uh, chapter 12, verse 2, he was reclining at the table with Jesus at dinner where Mary was. And sometimes I think we forget how extraordinary that is. We hear, you know, oh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Yeah, cool story. That's great. But it's mind-boggling. Just make it personal for a moment. Just imagine for a moment that your, your brother or your sister or, or your mother or your father, that they actually died before their time. Not of old age. They died before their time. And for four days, you've, you've been mourning their death. You've cried over them. And you've been struck by the tragedy of their early death. And then Jesus comes along and he raises them from the dead. And then you're sitting at the dinner table at home and there they are back from the dead. So if you make that personal, that's mind-blowing. It's, it's basically, it's unbelievable. Unless Jesus really is the Messiah the King, the Son of God. You see, Mary doesn't know at this point that Jesus is the dying Passover King, but she responds to what she does know about Jesus because she's seen and he raises the dead. And Lazarus is really uh, central to this scene. I think John makes this obvious for us as readers. So look again at verse 1. You see, what information does John add there about Lazarus? And we know Lazarus, right? Chapter 11, we've just heard about what Jesus did. But, but John adds that Lazarus was that guy, verse 1, that Jesus raised from the dead. Which is almost ludicrous that John would add that kind of detail. Of course we know who Lazarus is. We've just read about it. You don't forget very quickly about someone being raised from the dead, but John makes a point of it. And he says it again. So have a look at verse 9. He adds again, Lazarus, the one Jesus raised from the dead. And it's like John thinks that we're thick or something, because he says it again, verse 17, Lazarus, who had been caught out of the tomb and raised from the dead. Now, why does John do this? Why does he keep stating the obvious over and over again, that Lazarus had been raised from the dead? Well, because Lazarus was a walking, living sign of who Jesus is. Uh, it reminds us again of why John wrote his gospel. It's up on the screen. See, these signs, Lazarus, who's a sign at this point, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and Lazarus was a sign, pointing to who Jesus was. And what does Mary do as she sees her, her brother, who was dead, now reclining at the table with Jesus. How does she respond to this walking, living sign in her brother? Well, look at what she does in verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of fragrant oil, pure and expensive nard, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. See, what does she do? She worships Jesus. She responds 
to who Jesus is with this costly act of gratitude. And it's extravagant. And it's devotional. Why? Because she loves her king. And in verse 5, we read that the oil was worth about 300 denarii. And 300 denarii, that's about a year's worth of a wage for the lowest income earner of that time. So think about in the, in the vicinity of, of ten to $20,000. That's, that's how expensive this oil was that, that Mary extravagantly put on Jesus. It's over the top. It's costly. But she knew who Jesus was. And how could she not when Lazarus was sitting there at the table? And Mary here, she was doing more than she knew. Kind of like Caiaphas who prophesied about Jesus dying for the nation but didn't really know what he was saying. Well, Mary, as she did this act, she didn't really know what she was doing. But look at what Jesus says in verse 7. He says, leave her alone. Why? Because she has kept it, kept this oil for the day of my burial. And again, Mary didn't know she was anointing Jesus for his death. She was, she was simply responding to what she knew of Jesus, that he was a king worthy of this expensive oil, this oil that was probably a, a family heirloom or, so, or something like that. It was probably kept in her family to be used on an important member's death or for a very important occasion. She didn't know she was anointing Jesus for his death, but Jesus knew exactly what was happening. He knew he was going to die. And Jesus knew that Mary was doing more than she knew, that she was anointing him for that death. Uh, But not everyone, as they saw this happen, was in favor of Mary's action. Look at how Judas responds in verse 4. So Judas, verse 4, then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray Jesus, said, Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And at first, that makes a lot of sense, right? It's, it's worth about ten dollars to $20,000. That's reasonable. Why not sell it? Why not use the money for something else? It seems like a, a wise and effective use of a resource. But Judas didn't really care for the poor. He cared for himself. So verse 6, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. And friends, there is sin and the devil very much at work in the heart of Judas. And just see the contrast that John is drawing for us here. You see, on one side, you have Mary giving extravagantly and in a costly manner in devotion of her Lord and King Jesus. And on the other side, you have Judas who is taking extravagantly in betrayal of Jesus. And remember, the whole time, this is why they're at dinner, Lazarus is sitting right there. John won't let us forget it. Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. And what is Judas concerned about? See, what is his response when Lazarus is sitting there? Well, he's worried about his pocket. He's worried about it. Well, how can I make a buck out of Jesus? You see, he's a fool. Here is the king at the dinner table who raises the dead, And Judas is worried about treasures on earth. If I can be slightly rude, he's an idiot. How foolish. And in the contrast, it continues in verse 9 to 11 with the chief priests. So have a look at verse 9. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned that he, Jesus, was there. And they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one who had raised, he had raised from the dead. 
Therefore, the chief priests decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. And again, that's foolish. And this time, it's foolish on a number of levels because if you just think about it logically for a moment, this is, this is pretty dumb, right? Here are the chief priests and they're kind of going, Hey guys, let's, let's go and, and kill that guy who was dead but then has been raised from the dead by Jesus. And people are following after Jesus because he raised him from the dead. So let's fix the problem by killing Lazarus, you know, the one who was raised from the dead. It's just ludicrous. It's, it's dumb. He, they, he's, he's been dead already and raised. But it's even more foolish than that because the chief priests were more interested in their earthly power and their earthly possession and their earthly position than they were in seeing clearly who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that he's the one who raises the dead. Now, what is God telling us here? Well, I think it's worth reflecting on those three responses of of Mary and Judas and the chief priests. You see, Mary didn't know the full picture yet. She didn't quite know who Jesus was as the Passover lamb, as the king who would die, but she knew enough and she loved Jesus. And from what she knew of him, she was all in. She was at his feet, giving sacrificially at great cost in great adoration of her king. And brothers and sisters, what an example for us. To to us who, who actually know a whole lot more about who Jesus is, Then Mary did. You see, I think the question for us is, are we all in with Jesus? Do we love Jesus like this? Are we devoted to him? When was the last time we did something extravagant for Jesus like Mary did? I've been uh, reading a book about the history of the Summer School Katoomba Convention. Uh, If you don't know what that is, it's kind of a big convention that happens during January once a year in Katoomba. Uh, Thousands of people go. I was there in January and this book was in the bargain bin, so I thought I'd pick it up. Uh, And in it, as as I read it, the history of this convention, it mentions a young lady named Constance Young. And uh, she was from a a middle class, uh, upper class, well-to-do family. Uh, And she was very comfortable in life in her family. But she went to this convention and she was struck by the missionary needs in our world. And so what she did is she gave up her middle class comforts and she left and became a missionary in the Solomon Islands. And she did great work there for the Lord. Uh, But sadly, at the age of 32, uh, so she was quite young, 32, she got sick. And there's not a lot of medical care in the Solomon Islands. And she died over there. She lost her life. But do you see, there was someone who was all in. Someone who gave sacrificially for her Lord, in love for her King Jesus. It even cost her her life in the end. And they still remember her in the islands, in the Solomon Islands today, and and the work that God had done through her. Or take another example uh, from the same family, from the Young family, one of the oldsmen, uh, Ernest Young, who was one of the founders of the Katoomba Convention itself. And he didn't become a missionary, and he wasn't a minister or a clergyman or anything like that. He was a businessman. But he loved the Lord, and he loved his king, and he was all in for him, and he honored his king, 
and he gave immeasurable amounts of his time and his hospitality and of his money to, to get these conventions started because they preached Jesus. And he was a quiet man and he wasn't kind of an outspoken guy, but he labored hard and he labored diligently in the background to serve his king. You see, Mary was all in for Jesus and it was costly and it was extravagant and it was devotional for her king whom she loved. And brothers and sisters, it is our pleasure to do the same. To recognize Jesus as our king, as the Messiah and to love him and give our all to him. And if it's time you have, then give your time. If you're too busy then free up your time so that you can serve Jesus, your King, more. For some of those who are, old, who are older here, if it's money you have, use it for Jesus. Free up more of your money. Spend less on holidays, on houses, on extras, and be all in with Jesus. If you are a, communica- a gifted communicator or a teacher, well, then spend more time teaching people about our King. Go and do SRE. Sign up for Kids Church. Be a youth leader. Meet one-to-one with non-Christians and share the gospel with them. You see, if Jesus is King, and He is, then we need to be all in. And we need to see the warning in Judas and the chief priests. Because Judas was short-sighted. Because he looked to the now. You see, he looked to, to the money bag in his hand that he looked after. He looked to what he could get out of it all. And it's hard to know with Judas. Did he actually ever follow Jesus or not? We don't know. Maybe he did follow Jesus at first and then he was tempted away. But brothers and sisters, be careful of being a disciple on the outside, but being a Judas on the inside. Because Judas, he was one of the twelve. Jesus picked twelve and Judas was one of them. But on the inside, he was a betrayer and he was a hypocrite. You see, you can't be half in with Jesus. You need to be careful of the temptations of our world. You see, working hard at your job or at your study or whatever it might be can quickly turn into being obsessed with your studies and obsessed with your job and being all in for your job or being all in for your study. And if that is you, then that's to be a disciple on the outside but a Judas on the inside. And it might not be your job or your study. It can be your sport. It can be your hobbies. It can be your spouse. It can be your family. All those things can take us away from Jesus. And beware of the attitude of the chief priests. You see, the chief priests, they liked their religion and they liked their comfortable position too much to change. You see, they liked what they knew to be all in with Jesus. They didn't want to change. They liked what they had. And we always need to be careful of that kind of religion that actually separates us from following Jesus as king. Sometimes we hate change because it doesn't suit our comforts, even though it might be best for the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And we can even come to church on Sundays and and tick the church attendance box, and we can go to gospel teams during the week and tick that box, and we can even tick the I'm serving on a roster box, look how great I am, and still in all that fail to be all in for Jesus. We can even come to church every Sunday night because we like the people and we like the music, and we like the atmosphere, but still fail to be all in for Jesus. You see, we need to be careful of that kind of outward religious show 
which has an inward chief priest heart. So brothers and sisters, will you learn from Mary's example? Will you be all in with Jesus? Jesus above all else, love him in the way that Mary did. And that's what Jesus means by saying you will always have the poor with you. It's not that we shouldn't give money to the poor. That's a good thing to do. But there's a priority. In everything, Jesus first. Jesus above all else. And the rest flows from there. And friends, remember that Jesus is our Passover King who takes away the sin of the world. And there is nothing wiser or more profitable for any person to do than to bow the knee to this king. And it's not only wise, but it's good. Because there's no king like him. There is no king who is God who would lay down his life for his subjects the way Jesus did. You see, praise God for our king. Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we give you great praise for our King Jesus, that he is a kind of king who laid down his life for his subjects, for us, who took away the sin of the world so that we might have life through him. And Father, we pray that we would be like Mary, that we would be all in with Jesus as our king, that we would love him in response to what he has done for us. And we pray, Father, for your help in this, that by your Spirit, you will change us more and more to be like Jesus, your son, to the praise of his name. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.